Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. I'm Anthony Bourdain, and you're listening to The Trip a new podcast for my partners at Roads and Kingdoms. The trip is your passport to all things weirder, deeper, further. Each episode, a different Roads and Kingdoms contributor will take you behind the scenes of a reporting trip somewhere in the world. Now Nathan Thornburg, co-founder of Roads and Kingdoms, talks to Jacob Russell about the fine art of getting drunk and digging up your ancestors' bones for a party in Madagascar. They took a detour down a side road and the guys opened the gates and everybody filed into the courtyard of this house and just basically danced in the courtyard for about four or five minutes and then turned around and filed back out to the main road and carried on. I asked Amir, our translator, I said, well, what was going on there? And he said, oh, that was where some of the people who are going to be exhumed today, that was where they used to live. So their souls had to be picked up on the way to the party. This is Nathan, host of The Trip. This episode, instead of getting Jacob Russell into the studio, he's taking us to the graveyards of central Madagascar. The party he was there for is called the Fama di Hana. It's like a local version of the Day of the Dead. His host was a gracious man by the name of Jules Rakatoa Soa. Now, Jacob is usually a conflict reporter based in the Middle East, but for him, this trip got pretty personal. Have a listen. The village where the family Hanna took place, which is called Amboibari, on the day we arrived was market day. It was packed with people come to buy and sell things for the week. It's in the highlands, and the highland people are, I believe, the oldest people who have been on Madagascar. They were converted to Christianity by missionaries a couple of hundred years ago. As happens in a lot of places where missionaries went to, they've kept elements of the religion and culture that, that they had before, before Christianity and kind of um, melded the two into each other. Most people's identity was primarily Malagasy. And then after that, they were, they were Muslim or Christian like a village anywhere in the world, you, you're known like as soon as you walk in as an outsider. I mean, there were people coming up to us after the third or fourth day and they were saying like, oh, hey, how was the biscuit that you had at my cousin's shop three days ago? Um, <laughs> so really like every, every step we took was, was known and, and, it, and it worked in that sense because on the days of the, of the main events, Nobody was, like, surprised to see us there. A few relatives started arriving, and there's, like, the kind of close, intimate family in the village, and then there was the slightly extended family, who, um, a lot of whom lived in the capital, um, and then there was the, the real extended family, like the 300 people that turned up to the event in the end. 
uh, Jules's, a couple of Jules's brothers turned up and there was this kind of group of guys. They came to like, <laughs> they came to help set up and to help planning and stuff, but it, it seemed a bit like it was kind of a chance for like the lads to get together before, the, before everything started because they didn't actually really start doing anything until, until the day before. They started to build a, a shelter on the street outside Jules's house, um, which would turn like the whole street outside into a dance floor. And they took the doors and the windows off of Jules's house, so it just became an open house. So there was, you could just like walk in and out and onto the dance floor and back into the house. Um, a big sound system came from the capital. They hired a sound system that came down on a, on a truck and set that up. morning of the party, um, there were several things that had to happen. Uh, one was that the area had to be blessed. There's a guy in the village, Mpandru, who is a kind of, he's a kind of witch doctor. But I don't want to conjure up the images that I think witch doctor conjures up, because if you saw him, you'd think he's just a normal dude. But he, he's responsible for um, working out which day the family hand should happen on and making sure that everything goes well and that it's not interfered with by any kind of uh, malicious intent, human or, or otherwise. So he comes around and they, they bless the house with rum, um, and then they have to, to bless the area where the food is going to be cooked, and that's done by killing a chicken, um, and the blood of the chicken has to be spilt on the ground where the food is going to be cooked. Uh, and that was a pretty interesting experience because the chicken, uh, the guy that was doing it, I don't think he did it <laughs> very well, and the chicken, he kind of, he, he cut its throat basically and then, and then let it go and it, and it flapped around. It's a bit grotesque, but that's what happens when you cut a chicken's throat. And it flapped around and started kind of spraying blood everywhere. And my, my partner who was standing next to me was hit full in the face and all down her front with a big spray of chicken blood, <laughs> which seemed to be, she wasn't that happy about it, but it seemed to be like uh, everyone else thought it probably implied some, some uh, great luck. Even though these ceremonies sound quite strange and sound quite bizarre, a lot, a lot of this was really familiar. And regardless of how exotic it sounds when you, when you describe it, like sacrificing chickens and blessing the place with rum and you know, doing this and the witch doctor coming along and everything, it definitely felt strange, but it didn't feel exotic. You know, what it felt like standing in front of it was just seeing a big family who don't see each other very often coming together for a really special occasion. <laughs> And then people really start arriving at this point. So then there's buses turning up from the capital and the, the whole bus is full of family who have come for the... Um, and at some point a band's turned up. So but they hire a band for the whole weekend. Um, and the band was a sight to behold. There were about 12 to 15 guys um, playing clarinets and trumpets and drums. And these instruments had definitely seen better days. They were just completely falling apart. I mean, they looked like they were, they were in such a bad state that they looked like almost designed. You know, it looked like some very avant-garde like uh, design had gone into these instruments. And they were so hammered that they could barely play, but they managed to somehow. 
It, most of them managed to. I mean, there was one guy who just kept staring at his trumpet and he'd kind of pick it up and, and not do anything and then like stare at it as if he didn't know what it was and he'd never really seen it before. And eventually he just, he, he, like you could visibly just see him give up and kind of shrug and just go off to the side and sit down. <laughs> um, and so they played a few tunes and everybody danced and then the DJ got back on and it just went on. I mean, we went to bed like quite a long time before everyone else because we were kind of exhausted after the day. And they, I think they, they uh, I think the party stopped at like five in the morning, 5.30 in the morning. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go anywhere. When we come back, Jacob goes inside a crypt and dances with the dead. The trip is brought to you by Tiger Beer. And for one minute each episode, we're going to take you to the Lower East Side with some of Tiger's favorite people from the neighborhood. In this New York Minute, we're introduced to the world's first underground park, the Low Line. Right now we are standing at the entrance of the Low Line Lab. So this is where we are channeling the sunlight from outside into this space. So the idea behind the low line is to take over an abandoned trolley terminal that's over 100 years old, it's been abandoned for almost 70 years, and to turn that into a green public space, the world's first underground park. The way we're able to do that is with a new type of solar technology that allows us to channel sunlight above ground and redirect it underground so we can grow plants and trees. This is something that's never been done before in the world. And in order to demonstrate this idea, to do research, and to invite the public into the process, we opened the low-line lab. And the center of this, this is where we're admitting the full-spectrum natural sunlight. And this is spread across all of the thousands of different plants that we have here. How can we add new public space in our cities where it's not seemingly possible? Um, cities are crowded and are only going to get more dense. And at street level, there's just no open space. So the Lillian is a creative solution um, to add a full acre of public space in one of the densest areas of New York. This is an idea that we are hoping, once we could do here, can be applied not only across New York City, but to other cities around the world as well. That was your Tiger Beer Lower East Side Minute. Now back to the trip. The next morning, they got up at about 7.30, 8 o'clock, after going to bed at like 5.30 or 6 or something. And, and uh, everybody gets together for lunch. So the first thing that happens is a big lunch. And they have to, they're obliged to feed, or to offer food at least, to the whole village. So you, the, the whole, all the guests who had arrived and all the people in the village queue, were queuing up outside the house. And it was a three-story house, and in every single room they'd set up benches and tables, and they were people would file in, fill up the whole house, and then the family would serve them food, and they would have like 20 minutes to eat it, and then everybody would file out, and the next group would come in. And you know, even the police uh, come for lunch, and really everybody, like it's, it's, it's a kind of contribution to the community. We got chicken heads. It was awful. <laughs> I was a bit hungover myself as well. It was, it was, yeah, it was terrible. Um, and everybody starts drinking as well, and the DJ's playing again as well, I should mention. So even though it's like 11 o'clock in the morning at this point, and it's really hectic, and everyone's hungover as hell, everybody's kind of hitting the beer and the rum. And then the band turned up again, looking, <laughs> looking dreadful. Like, the band looked absolutely on death's door when they arrived. Um, 
<laughs> and they were just given a bit of food and a beer to try and perk them up. And uh, and then about one o'clock in the afternoon, um, Jules kind of makes a signal and the band starts playing and a procession forms up around the, around them and then everybody starts marching off to the to the cemetery, which is about a mile outside of outside of the village. It was really nice, you know. The band's playing this like marching music. It's got like a good rhythm that keeps everyone going and. The teenagers and the kids were taking the front of the procession, and they had a, a portrait of um, of uh, Jules's parents and a Malagasy flag. It's a mile away, and everyone's kind of dancing down the road, and the momentum like slackened a bit after about half a mile as everyone got a bit tired. <laughs> the hangovers got too much, and then but they made it to the to the cemetery. It kind of looked like a festival. There. It was on top of a hill overlooking the valley that Amboibari is in. Um, it's very pretty, very kind of like hilly, rural environment. Um, and the cemetery is quite pretty itself. And there's these big crypts, which are about the size of, the biggest ones are about the size of small houses. Jules and his brothers climbed to the top of the crypt and made a speech to everybody there. And then they raised the Malagasy flag and sang, everybody sang the national anthem. At that moment, I suddenly became aware that I was in quite a special place, surrounded by, surrounded by dead people, basically, and surrounded by dead people who, who whose relatives thought the bodies were significant enough and represented the people enough that they needed to be part of the ceremony still, which is something that's kind of alien um, to my sensibility because I think when somebody dies, the body loses much of its significance. And having experienced a bereavement when I was quite young, of my even younger brother, it was a subject that interests me. When my brother did pass away, one of the most um, noticeable things was the, was the effect it had on, on the people around me. You, you know, I'm English. I fully appreciate the, the idea of like pulling yourself together. Um, but when it goes too far and it becomes a kind of obsession with moving on and an obsession with closing down emotional spaces so that they don't interrupt your daily life anymore. It creates a very strong sense of isolation because there isn't a social space for, for this dead person to occupy. You have to suppress this uh, relationship that you, that you feel as if you're continuing to have. You have to suppress it and uh, it can become something which is a bit toxic in fact. They started to open the crypt. Um, and the crypt was, um, the entrance to the crypt is below ground. So most of it, in fact, is below ground. Um, and then there's a door at the entrance, and then there's steps that lead up to ground level. And then over the steps, there's two enormous stone slabs 
that were um, laid over the, over the steps. And then those slabs were buried in earth. So they start this process of uncovering the crypt, which is, which is quite long and involves like guys digging, first digging away the earth with spades. So, and I found this fascinating because it, it's so obviously um, the, the kind of security of the crypt was so over the top. And I was wondering, is this to stop people getting in or something getting out? And the, but there's nothing in the crypt to steal, you know? It's not like there's anything to, to loot from there. There's, the, the people aren't buried with any valuables or anything like that. So, which I think the implication of it is that it's to stop things coming out. It takes like eight or 10 guys to lever up each one of these slabs over the stairs. And then they go down the stairs and then lever this door open. Um, and uh, this is all done with like a lot of rum drinking and shouting and a lot of fun, basically. And then only men are allowed into the um, into the crypt. So there was a few guys, including Jules, who went down to start getting bodies out, and I followed them down. And the crypt is like very. It's quite big, but inside it's very narrow and it's corridors around chambers. And inside the chambers are the bodies of um, the Rakatoa Soas who have been who have been buried there. And it was kind of spooky. It wasn't really scary. And it was like, I was almost disappointed by how, uh, <laughs> how predictably crypt-like it was, <laughs> which <that laughs> sounds kind of stupid maybe, but it was like a bit damp a bit cold, not really smelly, but, you know, exactly as you would imagine a crypt to be. And it's dark inside the crypt, and they, the guys just have candles. And you could see the bodies kind of lining. The bodies were, like, at the edges of the chambers, um, up against the walls, and they were all wrapped in shrouds, which have gone a bit brown and, um, you know, looking a bit the worse for wear. Another guy who was in there, who was uh, one of Jules's brothers, he turned around. He must have seen the expression on my face, looking a bit like uh, a bit weirded out or something. Because he turned around, he's like thrust this bottle of rum at me, and he was like, "Don't be afraid, don't be afraid. They're just our ancestors." And then they just kind of search through the bodies because there's lots in there, and they only want some of them. I think there was about eight that came out in the end, and it's quite tricky to tell who's who. I mean, the old ones were super skinny bundles, um, and you could tell there wasn't much in them, and the newer ones still had a bit of heft to them. Um, it wasn't smelly or gross. And it's done, the family out is done like a, it's done a minimum of three years after the person dies. And they didn't unwrap the shrouds either, so you, at no point did you ever see like skulls or, or, or bones or like bits of hair or something like that. It was always just, you were always, I mean, you're very obviously the shape of a body, but. You, you didn't see the, the details. So they pick out the bodies that they want to take uh, and then kind of maneuver them out of the crypt, which is quite tricky because these corridors go around corners and up and down steps and things, and take them out the side and take them outside to where all the people are waiting. After the bodies have been taken up above ground, the immediate family of each dead person uh, surrounded them, they were laid on the ground and they surrounded them and they wrapped them in a new shroud um, which is just wrapped over the old one and then they just sit with them and it went the atmosphere kind of calmed down quite a lot 
And it was still cheerful, but it was more contemplative and a bit more quiet. And, you know, people were joking with each other and stuff, but it wasn't as hysterical as it had been during the procession. Um, and I, there was, I saw maybe two people wiping away a tear, but apart from that, there was no crying or, um, or wailing or, or anything like that. There was just like very tender, it was just very intimate. There were people who were sitting and there was families who, you know, were sitting opposite each other with their, with their legs out and they laid the body across their legs and they just sat and sat with their hand on it and some of them were sort of chatting with each other and others were just sitting there quietly and, and there were lots of people standing around, you know, it was very, it wasn't private. It was intimate, but it wasn't private at all. This was definitely a social event that was happening. And at the same time, it wasn't, it wasn't heavy, it wasn't sad. There were, there, were, there were some people who were obviously affected and there were a couple of guys who were like, extremely drunk and they were more demonstrative than some of the other people. The oldest lady that we met was this lady called Bebe, who was kind of an institution within the village. I think she, I think she was the oldest member of the Rakatoso clan, and she was really enthusiastic about the event. And she was she was dressed very nicely in this old-fashioned white uh, skirt and jacket. Very elegant lady, and her mother was one of the bodies that was exhumed. She was standing over over the body uh, in front of her. And she, I caught her eye, and she gave me this huge smile, and she said, "Say my mare," which you know means it's it's my mother. That's my mother. And there was something kind of very explanatory about that because because it, it it's not it wasn't in fact her mother, as as I understand it at least, it wasn't her mother who who was there. It was um, you know bones at that point. I mean that was one of the oldest uh, bodies that had been taken out. So. There was really barely anything left of it. It was like this tiny, thin little parcel wrapped in a, in a slightly mucky-looking shroud. It was almost like the body provided something for her to, to point at or something for her to look at and something for her to coalesce the feeling of the presence of her mother around. And I think that often when you lose somebody who's close to you, you um, continue to feel affected by the person and it, you continue to feel in some way that you have a relationship with them, which has become suddenly a lot less reciprocal than it used to be, but it's a relationship nonetheless. And it seemed as though what this ceremony was allowing her to do at least, and I wouldn't speak for everybody who was there, but it seemed from her that it was giving her a kind of physical, real-world occasion to, to acknowledge the presence of her mother. And I don't mean that in a ghostly sense. I don't mean that in, this, in the sense that her mother's spirit was always hovering over her head and, the, you know, blah, blah, blah. I mean just in a, in, a, in a very human sense, that her mother, she still had a relationship with, with her mother because it was her mother. <laughs> In Western society, naturally, people are afraid of, of, of death and afraid of the death of their loved ones. And I think what was very uh, healthy about this was that it was understood that the, the connection to the people who had died was more important than, than the fear. 
And I think that as a social event, as a social phenomenon, and also the, the amount of social effort and investment that went into it um, in, in what seemed to be a very healthy way of acknowledging like the bigness, the enormity of, of death <clears throat> and of the, the death of relatives. And the thing that I also don't remember or I remember being missing about my experience of bereavement was, the, was like the robustness of it. It was such an unafraid reaction to death and to their dead. By no means do I want to, uh, or have I ever wanted to, or do I ever want to exhume the body of my of my uh, of my brother? These things are all tied to to a culture, and 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 you are also tied to your culture. I imagine that it would be comforting to be surrounded by a society which was prepared to to acknowledge and like stand up to to death. And I feel like that's something that's often missing in Western societies is that there isn't a space to continue to have a relationship, which you just do, whether you want to or not, with people who have died, with your dead, basically. The Trip is produced and edited by Josie Holtzman. Original theme music by Dan the Automator. With additional scoring and sound design by Josie Holtzman. And mixing by Ben Shano. Story help from Roads and Kingdoms executive editor, Kara Parks. Our podcast artwork comes from Adele Rodriguez. Special thanks to Jacob Russell for sharing his time and story with us. If you want to check out the original article that inspired this podcast, head to thetrip.fm. This week on Roads and Kingdoms, take a look at some more of our city guides. Really into this one from Accra. There's a dish called Makwe that we call the beautiful mess. Next time on The Trip, a look at pre-revolutionary Cuba and a legendary performer with a very specific gift. One we'll be talking about a lot. So you just want me to say this? Yeah. A couple times? Yeah. <laughs> um... The man with the sleepy eyes, male 40s, handsome, tall, with a penis from here to the corner. A few more times? <laughs> uh, let's just say that. Um, I'll do one more and then you guys can choose. This is great. This is how we know we're going to talk about penises a yeah. lot today. Yeah, I'm Nathan Thornburg, and you've been listening to The Trip. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.